Well, hi. Hi. It's good to see you all. You'll excuse me one private moment here. I can't help but reflect, because 30 years ago, I started talking. 15 years ago, GCA became a public church. And now I look out on all of you, and I think, how'd we all get here? I deserve that. I'm just so very pleased and so very impressed, and just thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for traveling from wherever you traveled from, including the youngs who live literally across the street. Janine is jealous. We're here this morning for our annual communion service. Each year I have to think about some aspect of the communion to talk about, something else to teach about, some aspect of it that I can bring out and hopefully help you to appreciate all the more the wonderful blessing that we've been given in remembering the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. This morning is Resurrection Sunday, so we are certainly celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection, none of us would have any hope. We would be, of all men, most miserable, and we would still be in our sin, and we would stand before the Father and be judged because we had no one standing between us and his absolute holiness. So the fact that Christ got up from the grave demonstrates that we have a mediator and that we have an advocate who is pleading our case before the Eternal Father. So that's not just slightly significant, that's the very basis of our entire Christian hope. If you remove the resurrection, we have no hope. In the communion, not only are we recognizing the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, but there is a, an eschatological aspect to it. And I don't know that I have ever preached on the eschatological aspect of the communion. So since we're doing Daniel on Wednesday nights, and since we seem to be in a sort of eschatological mode, I figured, well, this year, we're going to talk about the kingdom. Amen. Because Jesus said, Matthew 26, 29, now you're welcome to try to check all the verses this morning. And if you have an electronic device, it'll be easier than flipping pages. But if I spend the time to allow you to turn to every verse I'm going to cite this morning, it's going to take an excessively long time. But actually... I would be fine with you not even opening your Bibles. I would be fine with you just listening and just letting the Word of God take over your mind, take over your thinking, because I'm really trying to get the big picture this morning. And I think as you absorb all of these pieces and all of these details and you see how they work out and how they fit together over the course of human history, you will see why it is that Jesus made such a big deal of the kingdom. And lately, I personally have been obsessed with the kingdom. The whole idea of the kingdom. 
because I actually want to see Christ glorified on planet Earth. I actually want to see righteousness break out on this planet as chaotic and sinful and God-hating as the planet is. I want to see Christ back in his glory and I want to see God do everything he ever said he was going to do. And we're going to spend a lot of time this morning, well, some time, okay, a lot of time. We're going to spend some time this morning looking at what God has said over the course of ages about the kingdom to come. And hopefully by the time we get to Matthew 26, 29, you will understand the significance of why Jesus would say, but I say unto you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And you could very easily, I saw that, I saw you almost clap. Because it is such a significant statement that Jesus is waiting even now after keeping the Passover after keeping it his whole life and then changing the focus to himself and to his death and to the deliverance of his people, that that's not all there is that's involved in this. He is also coming back. He is also establishing the kingdom. He is also going to regather all 12 tribes of Israel. He is also going to rule from Jerusalem on David's throne, and he left us like a talisman, a little something we can hold on to, a promise that he made to us that he's not going to do what we're going to do this morning. We're going to drink of the fruit of the vine this morning, and he has told us, I'm not going to do that until I do it with you in the kingdom. Amen. Isn't that something? Yes. I want to be there. I want to do that. I want to be part of that. I want to see him drink it. I want to be there celebrating when he says, my kingdom is established. Come and join me at my banquet table. Won't that be wonderful? Because yes. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. Amen. And I am looking forward to the day when he is going to crack the sky and get his church and take us home and take us to the marriage supper of the Lamb and give us white robes of righteousness. And then he's going to return with the ten thousands of his saints, says Jude. We're going to come back with him and we're going to know the kingdom. Now, to talk about the kingdom, that also makes us premillennial. And we assume that the thousand years is an actual literal thousand year span of time on planet Earth during which the kingdom actually exists here on planet Earth, and we have friends, Reformed friends even, who would disagree with that. And I will defend their right to be wrong. But, I'm sorry. <laughs> but by the time I get done this morning, by the time we get done reviewing this morning, I think you're going to see why it is so very significant that there be an actual, literal, genuine thousand years on planet Earth during which there is an actual, literal, physical, genuine kingdom. Because I believe in an actual, physical, literal, genuine Jesus Amen. who is coming back to this actual, literal, physical, genuine planet 
to actually physically, genuinely rule planet Earth. That's his ultimate plan. So I say that the thousand years must be physical and literal and genuine. Otherwise, where's the kingdom? And there's so much talk of the kingdom. So where does the kingdom begin? If you want to turn to Genesis 12, do that. The kingdom concept begins, at least for me, all the way back at the Abrahamic covenant, when God began choosing, electing a certain lineage of people who would be his distinct people. And he called them out from all the nations of the world. He chose a man in Ur of the Chaldees, which is Iraq these days. And he called one man and said, Start walking, I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham left his family, and he took his wife and his nephew, and he took his family and, and just started walking because God said to. And then God took him to the land that we know as Palestine and Israel. And there he made him a promise, an unconditional promise. Do you understand what I mean by unconditional let me do the derivation of that word for you. Maybe it'll help you. The meaning of unconditional is no conditions. God is going to do this because God is going to do this based on God's faithfulness to God's own word. God makes a promise to himself, I'm going to do this. Nothing Abraham could do. Nothing anyone could do. Nothing any human could do could change the fact that God said, I'm going to do this. And here's what he said he's going to do. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is the first three verses of Genesis 12. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Three chapters later in chapter 15, starting at verse 5, God took Abram outside and said to him, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him for righteousness. We are only 15 chapters into the first book of the Bible. We're 15 chapters into Genesis when we find God declaring that the way that righteousness is established is through faith. He's going to deliver the law later. The ministry of death! There, I did that for Tom's sake. Because <laughs> it turns out it has to be yelled. I guess so. <laughs> God is going to deliver these people to the law so that they know what righteousness looks like, but because of the weakness of their flesh, they can't do it. And if God had only dealt with them through the law, then none of them had any hope at all. 
But we're going to see time and time again, even into the New Testament, that because of the unconditionality of the promise that God made to Abraham, even though these people were sinners constantly, even though they were rebels, even though they ended up worshiping other gods, even though they were ultimately taken out of their land, despite all that, God gave them an unconditional promise, I'm going to do this. Listen to the promise. And he said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I have given you this land to possess it. Abram said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other half. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So Abram says, how do I know that everything you're telling me right now is true? I mean, you're telling me I'm going to have descendants, and through my descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Have you noticed I have no kids? I have no descendants. And God says, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you to sleep and I'm going to show you the next 400 years of human history where your descendants are concerned. And it starts right out with bad news. I'm going to take them into a land where they're not known and they're going to become slaves there. And after 400 years, I'm going to bring them back and give them this very land. That's the proof positive that what I'm telling you right now is all true. So when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to him, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. Sure enough, God punished the Egyptians for the way that they mistreated God's people even though it was God's determination and declaration from way beforehand that that's exactly what God was going to do. So God delivered the Israelites into Egypt and then punished the Egyptians for enslaving the Israelites, even though God told Abram that your descendants are going to go into Egypt and be enslaved there for 400 years. That's a really sovereign God. That's a God who can say, this is the future, this is what's going to happen, this is the way it's going to play out, and I will bless people and I will punish people according to my own good pleasure and my own will. That's a hard one to grasp, but it's the God of the Bible. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you're going to die, and you will be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but listen to God again saying, the Amorites are living in the land that I'm going to give you. 
and I'm going to give them another 400 years to make sure that their iniquity is to the full so that when I use you to come back and punish the Amorites, it's a justifiable punishment. After all, their iniquity is now full. Not quite full yet, but I'm going to give them enough time to really be offensive to me, and then I'm going to punish them. Again, really sovereign God. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It came about that when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed through between each of the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now think about that for a moment because the Israelites have never possessed that landmass. God has promised them a huge landmass. From all the way down in Egypt, all the way up to the river Euphrates. That takes them all the way into modern Iraq where you see the Euphrates running. A giant piece of land that he has promised the Israelites. They've never received it. What are we going to say about that? Did God lie? Was he joking? Did he just make something up and then go, I didn't know you'd be this bad. I thought you would keep my rules. I thought you'd keep my law. I thought you'd stay in the land and then I'd give you more land. And No, he understood exactly what he was saying. He was making an unconditional promise to the descendants of Abraham that they were going to possess that land that they have never possessed. Are they going to? Yes. They have to. When? Well, the kingdom. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenazite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Parasite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, and the Democrite. I have given them all... Um, and the Hippocrite. Just seeing if you're still with me. I'm going to give you this land that all these other people groups are in right now. I'm giving you this land in perpetuity as an unconditional promise. This belongs to you and to your descendants. A couple chapters later, Genesis 17, starting at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I'm God All-Powerful. I'm El Shaddai. I can do whatever I want to do. Now, by the way, I can never read that name without asking the question, if he has self-definitionally said about himself that he is the God that has all the power, all the might, how much power and might does that leave for anybody else anywhere else? None. None. So how much you got? None. You got nothing. All the power, all the might belongs to God. And by the way, that's the way you want it. If you had any might, if you had any power, if you had any say in the matter, you'd mess it up. It's good that he said, okay, you get nothing. I'll take care of everything. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, 
and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Do you think that when the Eternal One speaks of eternality, he knows what he's talking about? When he says everlasting, does he mean for a little while? Does he mean temporally? No, of course not. The everlasting one knows what he's saying when he says, everlastingly, I'm making my covenant with you and your descendants everlastingly. You're going to get this land. You're going to, we're going to see it as it develops, as God keeps adding to it, you're going to have a kingdom. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations come from you and kings will come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Next chapter, Genesis 18, starting at verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abram what was spoken about him. Four chapters later, Genesis 22, an angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, he was going to sacrifice his son. And then an angel of the Lord stopped him at the last moment. If there were any conditions to be met to the Abrahamic covenant, here God is saying the conditions met. Because you did this thing, I'm certainly going to do everything I said by myself. I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sands of the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So there, whatever condition there might be is satisfied. There's nothing for anybody to do. The unconditional covenant of God stands and is sure and is certain. The Abrahamic covenant then is passed down to Isaac. God said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, specifically because Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Ishmael's the firstborn. By right of progenitor, he should have received everything that Abraham received. He should have got Abraham's riches and his armies and his tents. It all should have belonged to Ishmael by right. And then God said, send Ishmael and the bondwoman out of the camp, do what your wife said, I'll take care of them. I'm going to make 12 nations and 12 kings out of Ishmael. I'll take care of him, but in your son Isaac, in your younger son shall your seed be called. 
So for those of you who are keeping track of, of seedology along with us, that's a made-up word that I, I adopted from David Morris one day. For those of you who are keeping track of the seedology, it's now gone. The Abrahamic covenant has now gone from Abraham down to Isaac. That's what it says in Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I'll give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and I'll multiply your descendants in all of these lands, and, and by your descendants, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my command, my statutes, and my law. So again, any condition there might have been, Abraham satisfied, and then Isaac received the Abrahamic covenant. And then it was passed down to Jacob, not Esau. There's two twins in the womb. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Am I talking really, really fast? <laughs> It's the only way to get this all in this morning. I'm just getting warmed up. I'm not even to my introduction yet. Don't encourage this behavior. It was then passed down to Jacob and not Esau. Esau came out of the womb first. He's the firstborn. He should have gotten the right of inheritance, but God again chose the younger one. By the way, if you see this pattern building and you recognize the pattern, then you're going to understand why Paul would talk about the first law, the first covenant, which he then called the old covenant, which is superseded by the new covenant, the younger one, because that's God's pattern all the way through the Bible. So the younger of the two, Jacob and not Esau, receives it. Starting in Genesis 28, verse 12, he had a dream. Jacob did, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Okay, so Jacob, you know the story. Jacob has 12 sons. Out of those 12 sons... As Jacob is dying, leaning on his staff in Egypt, we don't have time to get into how it is that he wound up in Egypt. But let me say just briefly that God took his son, his younger son, even though there were 10 older sons, he preferred the younger son and gave the younger son the blessing until he became second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And that's the way that God providentially kept the 12 sons of Jacob alive during the time of the famines that came throughout the, the Middle East. And so Jacob is in Egypt and he's blessing each of his sons and he's talking about what's going to happen to them in the end times. And he's prophesying over each of them and out of all 12 of them, 
the blessing, the birthright blessing goes to the two sons of Joseph. But the promise of seed goes to Judah. And he says, Judah is a lion's whelp, that out of Judah is going to come Shiloh, that out of Judah the lawgiver is going to come. So for those of you who are following the seedology, we've now gone Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then specifically Judah. Follow the tribe of Judah then to see the seed arrive on the planet. That's why Paul could in the New Testament be very specific and say Christ is that seed. He's the seed of Abraham that you can trace all of the genealogies and the lineages until you finally come to Christ. Did you ever notice that when you look at the New Testament, it opens with genealogies? Book of Matthew, book of Luke, keep the genealogies. Tracing the lineage of Christ back through David, back through Judah, even all the way back to Adam, so that you will know that genealogically the seed has played out exactly the way that God said it was going to. Not because people of their own free will and decision decided that they were going to do things the way God wanted them done, but because God in his sovereignty made sure by his almighty power that people would marry people, love people, name people, until the genealogy ended up exactly the way God said it was going to end up. I am talking fast. <laughs> You're with me. That's what I want to know. So God in his sovereignty made sure that the genealogy played out exactly right and then Christ comes to the planet in the rest of the New Testament. Have you noticed that there are no more genealogies? They go away. They disappear. In fact, Paul talks about the traditions of the Jews and the endless genealogies. Because you don't need genealogies anymore. The seedology is complete. The seed has arrived. So 400 years, they end up in Egypt as a result of Joseph being in Egypt. They're protected. They're in the land of Goshen. And when God brings the plagues on the land of Egypt, the Israelites, for the most part, are relieved of the plagues because God can, God can miraculously make lice show up in one area and not another, which I find fascinating. Or he can make the entire country dark and still have light in Goshen because God is absolutely sovereign. 400 years go by, Moses rises up, Moses brings the children of Israel through the wilderness with a stop at Mount Sinai where they are given the law, and then they are delivered back to the land of Israel. That's where I'm gonna start reading from the book of Joshua now. So God gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and not one of their enemies stood before them and the Lord gave all their enemies into their hand not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed it all came to pass and that's where the Bible should have ended that's where the Bible should have ended if in fact Israel had just remained in the land done the law done everything that God said they should do then that would be the end God gave them everything he said he was going to give them they didn't get the land mass all the way to the great river and all the way to Egypt but he gave them the land of milk and honey but that's not the end of the story despite the fact that again our our less premillennial more amillennial friends will say to us 
Well, it says right in Joshua that God gave Israel everything that he had promised him. Isn't that the promise? Isn't that the end of the Abrahamic covenant? Isn't that the end of the kingdom? They got the kingdom under David. David rules over the 12 tribes of Israel, and then God gave up on them because they were so rebellious, because they were so sinful. So God gave up on them, and all of the promises that were made to Israel are now being completed in the church. Ta-da, it's all done. Except that, if you look in the New Testament at the book of Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 4, 7 to 8, he again fixes a certain day and says, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, he said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them the permanent rest that they were promised, had Joshua given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. In other words, there are promises still to the nation of Israel in the book of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, there are still promises that God is going to give rest to all of Israel, a permanent rest, a rest in their land. And had Joshua accomplished it, he said, David wouldn't have afterwards talked about another day still to come. All I'm trying to get you to see is there's still a day to come. There's still a permanent rest. And the permanent rest starts when the kingdom gets here. So then the Davidic covenant. David is the only king in the history of Israel other than Solomon, at least for most of Solomon's rule, over all 12 kingdoms. It's during the time of Solomon that he is told that 10 of the nations are going to be given to uh, Jeroboam and that he's going to retain two of them. But God makes a promise to David, listen to the words that he says about the kingdom to come and who's going to rule over the kingdom to come. This is what he said to Saul. This is Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now that man after God's own heart was King David. We read about it in Acts 13, 22. After he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Second Samuel, starting in chapter 7, is the beginning of the Davidic covenant. Listen to this and take it seriously, because this is the beginning of kingdom promises that simply have not been satisfied yet, that have not been fulfilled yet, that have to be fulfilled someday, that Jesus said, I'm not going to drink of this fruit till I drink it together with you in the kingdom. This is the kingdom he's talking about. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build a house for me to dwell in? I really like that question by God. Because God says things like, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. 
God says to David, who wanted to build him a house because David realized that he lived in a beautiful house of cedar, and yet the Ark of the Covenant was still staying in a tent. He thought, God should not live in a tent while I'm in a fine house of cedar. I'm going to build a house for God. And God says, did I ever say to you, build me a house? Did I ever tell you to do that for me? Thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded you to shepherd over all my people Israel? Did I ever say, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all the enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Do you want to know whether or not God kept that promise? Here we are, all these years later, still talking about David. He has a great name on the earth, among all the peoples of the earth. I'll be with you wherever you go. I will cut off your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they will live in their own place, and they will not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom." Now, he can't be talking about Solomon because during the time of Solomon, he didn't establish the kingdom of David. He divided the kingdom of David. He's talking about another descendant, David's greater son. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, there's the word again, forever. Your house, your kingdom, your throne will be before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So David's the only faithful king of Israel who rules over all 12 tribes. The reason that I keep emphasizing that is that there are people who say that Jesus is right now ruling from the throne of David in heaven. To which I ask the question, how did David's throne get to heaven, to the right hand of God? David never ruled in heaven. David ruled in Israel over the 12 tribes. That's the throne, that's the house, that's the kingdom that God said is going to be established forever. Now let's just think logically for a moment. Here's God saying, 
You're going to have a descendant who is going to rule from your throne over my people Israel, from your throne, from your house. And yet, we know what happened to Israel. We know that the northern ten tribes went into apostasy and that ultimately they went into the Assyrian captivity and they have not been returned since. That's why we call them the lost tribes. Well, wait, they have all these promises. They have all these promises from God that he is going to establish them and that they're going to be a mighty kingdom. And listen to what he said. You're going to have rest from all your enemies round about you. You're going to have rest in your land, the land that I promised to Abraham by an unconditional covenant. And so far, that hasn't come true. Judah, the southern kingdom, they were taken into the Babylonian captivity. Then they were allowed to come back for a little while because, remember, Jesus had to be born in that area. So the particular tribe out of which Jesus was going to come, Judah, had to be reestablished until Messiah came. And then Messiah came, and then 70 AD, and then the temple was destroyed, and then Jerusalem was destroyed, and then the Jews were scattered all over the planet again. And then until 1948, there wasn't even an Israel. What is God doing God has said unconditionally a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. He made the same promise to all of them right down the lineage and said, I'm going to make a great kingdom. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to establish you. I'm going to give you peace from all your enemies round about. Where is it? It hasn't happened yet. And yet God promised it. First Kings 11 is where you can read about the split of the northern and the southern tribes. There were invasions, there were deportations of Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. But despite that situation, all the prophets of Israel, and by now for anybody who's been listening to me for any length of time, you should know this phrase. All of the prophets of Israel speak with one voice. All the prophets of Israel say the same thing. Despite the Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, Roman incursions, despite being out of their land, despite the fact that God has scattered them, God has not abandoned them. God keeps promising them through the prophets that they're going to be regathered, that they're going to be reestablished, that they're going to be in their land, and that David's greater son is ultimately going to rule over them. But we haven't seen it. Where is it? It's coming. coming. We're getting there. Listen to Isaiah 9 for just a moment. Starting in verse 6, you should know this. If you know the Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus, you know some of this. For unto us a child will be born and a son will be given. That's very specific language. A child is going to be born, but a son, the son of God, is given to the people. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Sure enough, the son came. Sure enough, the baby was born. Sure enough, the the descendant, the promised one, the Messiah, came to the planet. And the next thing we read about him from Isaiah is that he's going to take up the reins of government. And that government is going to rest on his shoulders. Did government ever rest on the shoulders of Christ? No, they tried several times to make him into a king. And every time he denied it, he did not come to the planet the first time to be the king of Israel. But 
it is surefire guaranteed that he's going to be the king of Israel. He's going to rule over the kingdom. He's going to reestablish the 12 tribes. He's going to bring in the kingdom of righteousness because it's promised all the way back here in Isaiah. For unto us a child is born and a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's why I want him back. Because I'm real tired of the lack of peace. By the way, Middle East, Israel these days, a lot of peace going on over there. Lots of peace breaking out over there. No, you can't even get on a bus without being afraid that you're going to blow up. But the prince of peace. I mean, human beings say peace, peace, and there is no peace. Men get together and make deals and make contracts and make peace treaties and say maybe this one will work maybe now there will be peace there's never going to be peace in Israel why because Israel is populated by humans and human beings are going to continue to be a lying murderous lot they are sinners and they are depraved and they're going to continue thinking that the way that they accomplish their own self-survival is by killing everybody who's not them. It's going on all over the planet, but one day the Prince of Peace is promised to be back. And that's when peace is going to break out. That's when there's going to be genuine lasting rest in Israel. That's when the things that have been promised to David are actually going to come true. The things that Joshua thought he was accomplishing, that the writer of Hebrews says, it's not accomplished yet. There's still no permanent peace going on, but there will be when there's a kingdom. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace. On the throne of David and over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It doesn't matter how many people don't think it's going to happen. It doesn't matter. Look, I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe he's coming to get us I believe he's preparing a place for us right now and he's going to come get us someday. He hasn't done it for 2,000 years. Is that any reason not to believe it? No, he just hasn't done it yet. But he's going to. He's also said that he's going to send Jesus to establish a kingdom. And it's going to last from then till evermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts Do you know what the phrase Lord of hosts means? Just like Nebuchadnezzar talking in the book of Daniel and saying that God does whatever he pleases among the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what doest thou? What are you up to, God? Why have you done this? Why is this your plan? Nobody gets to question him because he's going to do whatever he's pleased to do because he is the Lord, the master of the hosts. Everybody in heaven, hell, and earth is going to bend the knee and declare that Jesus Christ is absolute Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the Lord of hosts I'm talking about. Okay, so now when the Lord of hosts uses a word like zeal, I mean, that's him saying, 
I'm going to do it. And he's not just saying, I'm going to do it. He's saying, I'm going to do it for my own glory. I'm going to do it for my own word. I'm going to do it for my own faithfulness. I'm going to be doing this because I am consumed with accomplishing exactly what I have said I'm going to accomplish. The zeal of the Lord is going to do this. We don't have time to read through Ezekiel 37, but let me just summarize it for you for a moment. You know it's Ezekiel's dry bones. Uh, we have messages and I think a video on it, so I think we can just skim past this real quickly, but after Ezekiel prophesies to the dry bones, the dry bones get up bone to bone, flesh sinew comes on them, and the Spirit of God enters in them, and they become living souls, and then God interprets that for us. We don't need to add an interpretation. We don't need to talk about how this applies to you and me right now, and it means that when you preach, you're preaching to dry bones. That's the way it's usually preached. But God gives us the interpretation. Listen to the interpretation. God said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. That's right. This is during the Babylonian captivity. This is after the Assyrian captivity. The whole of Israel is scattered to the four winds and they are dried up. And God says, this is the whole house of Israel. Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. Okay, now this is during the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. And here's God saying again, I'm going to gather you, all 12 tribes, and I'm going to bring you back to this very land, the land that I promised to Abraham unconditionally. Remember that land? Remember that land I was yelling about a half hour ago? That unconditional promise still has to be completed somewhere. And here's God bringing it up again, despite the fact that Israel and Judah are out of their land. They're in rebellion against God. They're under punishment from God. And yet Ezekiel says, there's a time coming when I'm going to raise you up out of your graves. And then you're going to know that I'm God because I'm going to bring you back to this very land. Why? Because he's faithful to his own word. Later in Ezekiel chapter 37, my introduction's nearly done. Then later in Ezekiel 37, God tells Ezekiel to walk around with two sticks, on one of them right for Israel and his fellows, and on the other one right for Judah and his fellows, and then walk around with the two sticks in your hand. And when people come up to you and say, what do these sticks mean? Then you're going to say that God is going to bring Israel and Judah back together until they're one in his hand again. How many times does God have to say this? Once. Once. You bunch of wise guys. <laughs> Listen to God talk about Israel and Judah. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations. 
and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols and with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, for I will deliver them from all the dwelling places in which they have sinned, and then I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on in the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Amen. Is he vague at all there? No. Okay, now the tough question. Do you believe that? Yes. And this is what the Bible says. This is what God has said. This is the promise of a kingdom to come. And when God promised a kingdom to come over which David's greater son was going to rule, can you see now why when the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray Teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, when you pray, say this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First petition, what is it? Thy kingdom, thy kingdom come. What's he talking about? Well, it's in the next sentence. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly what we just read. God declaring that they're going to be his people. He's going to be their God. They're going to do his will. He is going to establish them. They're going to be an everlasting kingdom over which the lineage of David is going to rule and reign from the throne of David. All of that is foretold and prophesied time and time and time again. And Jesus says, when you pray to God, pray that he'll do that very thing. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I don't have time to talk to you about Daniel. We're teaching Daniel on Wednesday nights. Suffice it to say that a couple of times in the book of Daniel, there is a series of physical, earthly, genuine kingdoms on planet Earth that ultimately becomes the ten-toed kingdom, the last kingdom that's going to persecute Israel, and it's during the time of then, those ten kings that Jesus is going to return. Like a stone, we're told who's going to come and crush the ten-toed kingdom and then kill off the idol until they all become dust and blow away until that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw is all gone because the stone kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. And again, you find the prophecy of the return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. Micah 4.8, as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Is he lying? No. 
Is he making stuff up? Wait, I got more. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? Can I please emphasize that sentence? Because lots of people are devising very vain things. And the question from God is, why? Why are the people devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens says, oh, you poor dear, come here. You just misunderstood. I love you so much. Noogies for you. Do you have noogies in Australia? You have no idea what I'm talking about now, do you? Against the Lord and against his anointed, they are saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Where's that? That's Jerusalem. And I have established my king there. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And I will give you the very ends of the earth as your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron. Just like the prophecy of Daniel said, that the stone kingdom is going to come and destroy the other nations. This time it's a rod of iron. You will shatter those other earthly physical kingdoms. You're going to shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the king with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the king that he may not become angry and you perish from the way for his wrath may soon be kindled and how blessed are those that take refuge in him. So here's David in the Psalms. Here's Ezekiel. Here's Hosea. Here's the prophecies of Zephaniah, all saying the same thing. There's a kingdom coming. Zephaniah 3, in that day you will feel no shame because of your deeds. Remember, Israel has sinned. Israel has rebelled. Israel has not done the law of God. That's why they were taken out of their land. And yet they are promised, in that day, you'll have no shame because of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud and exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and a lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and they will lie down with no one to make them tremble. That's a promise to Israel. Anybody trembling in Israel these days? Anybody fearful? Anybody worried? Yeah. I'll say it again. That's because the kingdom is coming. And when it comes, these promises from Zephaniah and Zechariah, these are all going to come true. Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the weeping over a firstborn. Zechariah 14, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall upon them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this will be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. I'm only reading that to say, are the nations that are persecuting Israel interested in coming once a year to keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Are they coming to the temple to worship the God, the Lord of hosts? Is any of this happening? Now, I hope that I have just overwhelmed you with Old Testament evidence of the fact that the kingdom has to come or else the Bible's not true. And if the Bible's not true, you have no hope and let's just all get out of here. But if every word of the Bible is true, then the kingdom still has to come. Now we're in the New Testament. This will take a much quicker time. I sort of kind of promise. Luke 1, we're right at the beginning of the birth of Jesus in the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent to God to the city of Galilee near Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Wasn't that lucky? <laughs> that he just happened to be a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And his name shall be called Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There it is. As soon as he's on the planet, as soon as he's born, God dispatches Gabriel to go tell Mary, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus specifically. Yahashua is the Hebrew name. It's God with us. God is our redeemer. You're going to name him that specifically. Why? Because God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now your seedology is complete. Now you can understand directly from the Bible who the seed was that was promised all the way back at Abraham. The Lord God will give him the throne of David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Who's that? The 12 tribes are the house of Jacob. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Are you starting to get a feel for the fact that there's a kingdom coming? That's all I'm trying to get you to see. Because 
Jesus, right now, is waiting, sitting at the right hand of God until the calendar dates tick down, till the very day, the very hour where he's going to come back and establish that kingdom, and then he's going to do what we're going to do today. Then he's going to drink of the fruit of the vine. And he's waiting till he's gathered together with all of Israel and his kingdom and us. Now, all of these promises that we've looked at so far this morning are all Israel, Israel, Israel's promises. Isn't it astounding? Isn't it amazing that Gentiles like you and me who don't have those kind of promises get included? Amen. Isn't that remarkable? Amen. If that's for me, tell them I'm busy. <laughs> the language spoken by Gabriel is identical to what the Old Testament predicts concerning Messiah's purposes to establish a kingdom and to reign over Israel very specifically. Now it's against that backdrop that it's not surprising that when Jesus walked on the planet, the Jews, of course, would attempt to make him a king because that's what they're expecting. When Messiah gets here, he's going to establish the kingdom. Mark 11, starting at verse 9, says, Those who went in front and those who followed him, this is during the triumphal entry, started yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. That's what they're expecting. Now that tells us, by the way, since that was their expectation, that tells us what the proper reading of all those Old Testament prophecies is. If we come to a different expectation than they came to, then we've misunderstood the Bible. If we've come to a different expectation of what God's going to do next, like he's going to satisfy all his promises to Israel in the church, then our understanding is different than what the first century people who walked and talked with Jesus, who heard Jesus, their expectation was that everything the prophets had said was absolutely true, and they were trying to make him a king because they knew and they understood the physicality and the promise of a kingdom. So Jesus would say in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. So how would Jesus' original audience have understood those words? They would have understood it as the kingdom to come, the kingdom that all of the prophets were talking about. Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So what was Joseph waiting for? He was waiting for the kingdom. Even Jesus, when he was on the planet, when he was sending people out to preach his good news, you read it in Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 9.35 says that Jesus was going about in all their cities and all their villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. If you separate the kingdom concept from your Jesus concept, you're going to come away with a truncated concept of who Jesus was and why he was here. Sure, he came to die, and sure, he came to redeem his people. He's coming back to establish the kingdom. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand that, then you only understand one portion of the magnificence and, and the broad purpose 
of the Son of God coming to the planet. In Luke 22, starting at verse 28, Jesus says this really remarkable thing. He says to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So who's going to be in the kingdom? The 12 tribes of Israel. And the disciples are told they're going to be the 12 judges. Okay, now did Jesus mean that? Yes. And was he at all allegorizing the kingdom? No, he's making the kingdom very, very physical, very, very real. And notice that he said to them, you're going to drink at my table in my kingdom. That's important because he's going to say to them later, I'm not going to drink this again till I drink it new with you in my kingdom. Luke 23, 42, the thief on the cross was saying to him, Jesus, remember me when you get to heaven. Is that what he said? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's the Jewish expectation that the kingdom is coming. I've just got so, so, so very much more. The word kingdom appears 125 times in the Synoptic Gospels. And then it occurs in the book of Acts. And then right at the very beginning of the book of Acts, you know, I've talked about this so very many times. At the beginning of the book of Acts, it says that Jesus talked to his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom. We're even told what the topic is. He talks to them for 40 days about the kingdom. And then just before he leaves the planet to sail off into the blue, the last question they ever ask him is, will you at this time give the kingdom to Israel? They still understand that the kingdom belongs to Israel. They just want to know, are you going to do it now? Okay, you didn't do it before you were crucified. But now that you're crucified, now that you've been three days in the grave, and now that you're resurrected, now are you going to establish the kingdom? And he answers them, says to them, it's not for you to know the times, the seasons that God has placed in his own hands. In other words, he didn't say to them, Guys, do you not understand anything? I've been telling you for 40 days, the kingdom is an allegorical kingdom and the throne of David is in heaven. Do you know nothing, guys? It's not what he told them. And I'm driving that point because I want your belief and your belief in Christ and your understanding of the communion service to be based on what the Bible actually says and not on some imaginary allegorical, even if it's theologically good sounding, I don't want you to have concepts that are not biblical concepts or else you're going to come away just not understanding, again, the grandeur and the glory of what Christ has actually done for you. When they were come together, they were saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. 
and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's the plan of God. I'm not going to establish the kingdom right now. You're going to go out and preach my gospel. You're going to preach the death, burial, and resurrection. You're going to baptize people into my death, into my burial, into my resurrection, and then every Passover, instead of observing the Passover and remembering your deliverance out of Egypt, you're going to remember me. Remember me. Remember how I have delivered you. Remember what I did for you. Now, instead of keeping the Passover to remember what God did, you're going to remember what I have done for all of my people. That includes, I'm going to come back and establish the kingdom because I'm waiting. I'm not even going to drink of it again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. That's what we're commemorating today. We're not only remembering that Jesus died. And thank God that he did. We're not only remembering that his blood was shed on our account, but we're remembering that he's waiting and that he's coming back and that he's going to establish the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of righteousness. So we are included. That's the amazing part, is that because of Christ coming and because of his death and his resurrection, then the new covenant was established. And having established the new covenant after the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus could then say what Tom talked about yesterday. He could then give what is called the Great Commission. He could then say, now, instead of just to Jews, instead of just to Israelites, now go and preach my gospel to every living creature, baptizing people into my name, into my death, burial, and resurrection. Now you're going to remember and remember and remember, and every year we stop what we're doing and, and we try to clear our minds and we quit our internal dialogue and our theological arguments with ourselves, and we quit balancing our checkbook in our head and we just settle down, we just stop for a moment and we just remember. Because what Christ did for us in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection is not just wonderful, it's truly genuinely miraculous but it's the plan of God since before the foundation of the world. You're only here now and you only know anything about Christ and you only know anything about your Bible because God has revealed himself to you and he has revealed his son to you. But he has also revealed in his word that he's going to bring about a kingdom. And the reason that he is going to bring the kingdom is the same reason that he chose names before the foundation of the world. It's so that everything that happens on planet Earth for all of forever works out exactly the way he declared it was going to work out because he's that sovereign, he's that knowledgeable, he's that sure and certain, and he's that almighty so he can say this is what I'm gonna do and part of what he said he's gonna do is save you and part of what he said he's gonna do is to bring the kingdom and Jesus when it came time for his apostles to remember to change their focus to remember everything that he was doing instead of what happened 1400 years ago in the deliverance out of Egypt he didn't change the date he didn't change the commemoration he just changed the focus and he changed the focus to himself. And in the midst of all that, he added the promise, I'll be back, because there's a kingdom. So this is why we've gathered this morning. This is why we're all here. This is why you've come from such distances, and why you've driven, and why you have flown in, and, and why you've come across the street. You've all come here. <laughs> 
You've all come here for one reason, because you believe what the Bible says. It's the one thing we all have in common. It's why we love on each other. It's why we take care of each other, because we love the word of God, and we love what God's word has said about us. And God's word gives us two real ordinances. We are baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We align ourselves with Christ we announce to the world that we are aligned with Christ and our enemies of the world. And the other thing is every year, as close as we can get to Passover on a Resurrection Sunday morning, we get together to remember Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So that's what we're going to do now. Now, I have to say this every year, so I'm going to say it again. If you are in a, a, a program a 12-step program or something like that where you can't drink wine. We do use wine here, fermented, real alcoholic wine, because that's what Jesus used. But if you are in a program or you don't want that first drink of wine or, or it upsets you, we also have grape juice. And the men who hand out the elements of the communion will tell you which are wine and which is grape juice. Do you have water as well, or are we just grape, no, juice? We just grape juice? we just got grape juice. Some folks want to know whether GCA practices closed communion. I grew up a Lutheran. We practiced closed communion. So closed, in fact, that the pastor and the acolytes would actually go up to the altar behind a gate, and the gate would be closed, which was like gating the congregation off from the elements of the communion. We practiced closed communion if you weren't baptized in and catechized among the Lutherans and, and among our particular synod of Lutherans, then you couldn't take communion with us. Many, many years ago, Elder Ward used this phrase. I've used it ever since because I think it's inarguable. Elder Ward said, inasmuch as this is called the Lord's Supper and not Elder Ward's Supper, I don't believe that I have the jurisdiction to tell anybody that they can't take it. If you belong to the Lord, then you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper. This is not GCA's Supper. It's not Jim's Supper. This is the Lord's Supper. And if you are a believer in the Lord, then you should take it. Now, a word of warning as well. Paul is going to warn in 1 Corinthians 11 that there is a way to take this wrongly. And so many, many preachers have, have mispreached this section of the Bible and have said that you need to examine yourself to see whether you're worthy. I'll save you the trouble. Yeah, you're not. Especially Danielle. You're not. Sorry. You're not worthy. That's the whole point. If you were worthy, you wouldn't need this. You do this because worthy is Christ. Worthy is the king. Worthy is God, and we are recognizing his worthiness and our lack of worthiness. Now, the word that Paul actually used was an adverb. It uh, modifies the action. It is not an adjective. He was not modifying the actor. He was not saying, see that you are worthy. He was saying, see that you partake in a worthy manner. And the worthy manner is discerning the body and blood of Christ. And if you can discern that Christ died for you, 
If you can see that the sacrifice made on Calvary was a sacrifice made for you, then you are welcome to participate. So don't think about your individual worthiness. Think about him. More than two hours ago, we sang, forget about yourself and concentrate on him and worship him. And that's what this is about. Forget about yourself. Because there's nothing in you that would be accepted enough or of such quality or attractive enough that Jesus would die for you because of your quality. He died for you because you have nothing within yourself that could recommend you to God. So he had to get between you and God so that he can recommend you to God. And that's what we're remembering. So Tom and Alex, do you need help? Do you need any other people? Jeff's going to help me. With Tom, you. Alex, Jeff, Micah are going to go over there and get the elements. Now they're going to hand out the elements, the communion elements. Hold on to them, and we're all going to partake together. Luann's going to play something on the piano while they are passing it out. Now, one more thing. The bread that we use here is unleavened bread. That means that it's not wonder bread. It's unleavened bread because Christ called himself the bread of heaven. And he said, this is my body, and then he broke it. And I think the breaking is important. When the plate comes by you that has the bread on it, I want you each individually to break a piece of the bread for yourself. I want you to have the personal and visceral experience of knowing Christ died for me. He gave up his life for me. Whatever he may have done or not done for anybody else is unimportant at this moment. Remember that he died. He gave his body. He broke his body for you. So break the bread, hold the cup, and then we'll all participate together. Fair enough? Luann.
We're going to have prayer for the thanks for Christ shedding his blood, and then prayer for God allowing his son to break his body for our sin. Robert's going to thank God for the blood, and Terry's going to thank God for the body of Christ. We come before thee, Lord God Almighty, who has called us through his son, your son, and washed us in his blood. Lord, we give you thanks. Father, we give you thanks. Father, we thank you for the breaking of your body, for those that you were sent to deliver. Thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us into your body, that we are a bride, awaiting your return, awaiting your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, have your seat. Thank you both. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. Paul writing says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you, so do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're waiting for. Amen. Most gracious and heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people you have gathered here, the people you have brought from around the globe for one reason, to worship you, to look again at your word, and to hopefully have our faith built up so that we could be firmly established, not only in the doctrine of the Bible, not only in the prophecy of the Bible, but that we are firmly established in Christ, and that we recognize that he died for us that he rose for us, that he's coming again for us. And that is, that is our hope. And now, sadly, all too soon, we're going to start going our separate ways. But help us to pray for each other. Help us to stay in touch with each other, look after each other. 
Help us know that we're not alone in this world. You still have those that you have chosen out for yourself. Some sweet day, someday we will gather with the church of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, and we will finally know what it is to worship you aright. Without these sinful minds and these sinful bodies, to hear the, the music that you have designed for yourself, to see the glory of the angels that you have surrounded yourself with, to see the throne that only you could sit on, and to finally fall at the feet of our Savior. Just say thank you. We love you, Lord. And we look forward to the next time we all get together whether it's on this side of heaven or that side. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Forever and forever. Amen. Amen.